Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. For nearly 250 years, U.S. Army has begun fighting in its active combat operations, unready to prevail, and only over time, and at great cost in blood and treasure, has righted itself to gain the victory it sought. In this regard, we consider the Second Seminole War. The Army began both unprepared and unexpecting of an eight-year fight in Florida. Fortunately for the United States of America, the fate of the Republic was not at stake. After getting whipped in its early encounters with the Seminole in late 1835, and throughout 1836, the Army righted itself and muddled along. It did this through failed strategies and failed tactical execution, through poor supply, poor medicine, and poor conditions. Only belatedly did it accept the futility of total Seminole removal. It stopped fighting, declared victory, and went home. The Army left behind roughly 200 ravaged but still defiant Seminole warriors and their families to live in peace, at least for the time being. To what do we attribute this lack of readiness at the start of the Second Seminole War? In preparing for war, the emergence of the modern U.S. Army, 1815 to 1917, J.P. Clark, a U.S. Army colonel, military strategist, and military historian, provides us some answers. Colonel J.P. Clark, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much for having me. Although we are discussing how the Army fought the Second Seminole War, you focus your lens overall to the interwar years. As you stated elsewhere, we only know what were pre-war years after a war begins. How did the U.S. Army prepare for war after the War of 1812, for instance? So throughout the uh, entire antebellum period, uh, there was a lot of continuity. And I think probably later on we'll get into some of the differences as, as uh, the Army evolved uh, from, you know, the first Seminole War up, up through the 1850s and the third. But some threads that were constant throughout, uh, obviously the Army had to maintain its materiel. And so it had to keep forts up to date and fit to fight. Uh, its weapons, its stockpiles of supplies. Uh, another form of preparation was that, you know, it preserved, you know, it, its European style military ethos, uh, which, you know, that, uh, you know, the small units, uh, companies that made up, you know, kind of the, the, the building block of the army, uh, were well drilled, you know, small unit, uh, tactics. Uh, most of all is what we today would refer to as drill ceremony and, and being able to march around in, in response to the, uh, the commands of, of the officer in charge. That was also a way to instill discipline in the soldiers. And so that was, you know, a big part of their preparation was making sure that you had discipline and units that could, could execute commands. Uh, the officers made sure they had a strong sense of, of corporate identity and a sense of duty. Uh, there was also, they made sure they had basic tactical and technical proficiency for the officers, uh, particularly uh, when it comes down to uh, artillery and engineers. You know, that's why uh, West Point was founded, was in order to, to 
pass on the skills of gunnery and, and engineering and, and building forts and roads, but also for the you know the infantrymen and the cavalrymen as well, there was basic proficiency in terms of field craft that they made sure they had. And, and these were taught at uh, what they called schools of application. And so this is the, the early professional military education system that we had today, although for the most part, it was it was focused on teaching you know very basic skills, and so kind of a finishing school for lieutenants, whether they were coming out of West Point or uh, maybe you know directly commissioned, but focused on very junior officer tasks. Uh, the the key thing, in in some ways, it's easier to say what was not included in in how the U.S. Army prepared for war during the antebellum period, and what they didn't do for the most part was realistic field training. Uh, there was a couple of of large camps uh, that were kind of like the the grand European uh, maneuvers in the 1830s and 1840s, but there wasn't much of that. Uh, they did not think that you needed advanced education, and so things like staff colleges or war colleges were uh, were were not considered important. And the other thing was that they didn't have any any set doctrine about war fighting. Uh, they had infantry regulations uh, that kind of dictated, basically gave the the commander the formations and the commands so they could make their soldiers do what they wanted to. But it didn't tell a commander, you know, this is how you should use, you know, employ your unit in relation to the enemy and to the terrain. That was that was really left up to the individual. And so a lot of those things that today we take for granted uh, within the U.S. military and most Western militaries as being fundamental training, you know, advanced education and doctrine, uh, those were, were absent. And my contention is that if you'd gone up to a guy like Winfield Scott and said, hey, this is something that you need to do, you would have rejected it out of hand and said, no, that, that's not really all that important. It's all about being a gentleman. And, and, and that's, that's what, you, what you need. And so that was not part of what they prepared for. You have written that the officers accepted a guild-like conception of the profession of arms. What is the profession of arms and how was it guild-like in the U.S. Army of this era? Well, and so that's uh, you know perfect kind of uh, you know building on onto the uh, the last answer, and so that is the difference between you know a, a Winfield Scott and what he thought you needed to prepare for war and what we have today. And so as I said, you know, doctrine is something that fell outside of their scope. And so today we stress that you need institutions, and so places like the Army War College, uh, where I'm you know, currently at. You need those in order for the institution to give to the individual some some expertise. Here's how you command you know, organizations, and we'll, we'll educate you on it. We'll we'll train you on it through you know field training later on, and we'll also we'll we'll, we'll codify it into doctrine so that in case you forget what we told you in the schoolhouse, you can go back and you can see how it is that you're supposed to command a, a division or you know or issue an order. Uh, and there had to be some set general staff-like body that was going to to do all those things for the military. And so that's today's professionalism. The guild-like uh, professionalism uh, that I refer to in the book was really that, well, one, what you needed, what the, the, the prerequisite for success was being an officer and a gentleman, and a lot of it was about innate character. So it wasn't something that the institution could give to you. It was something that you brought in largely of yourself. Now, of course, they well, they said that yes, you know, experience and 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 reading about the campaigns of Napoleon or something like that, you know, will, will probably help you out. But for the most part, they really viewed you know military competence as being primarily an innate trait that you either had or didn't. Uh, and typically, you know, most would say, well, we all kind of have it. It's just you know to what level. You know, there there are some people who are just better than others. Uh, but it wasn't up to the institution in order to be able to change that. And so that first element of it was that the institution couldn't really make you that much better. It was innate. 
And then the second part is that, um, which naturally follows from that, and this is, you know, definitely where the guild-like uh, nature comes in, that it was uh, a lot of informal group norms. Uh, so much like a guild where you have people by virtue of the commission of an officer, uh, and that was a contract between you and uh, the government, that you were going to be, you know, you were going to commit to a lifelong service. Uh, some of it, you know, often pretty uh, onerous and difficult, as especially, you know, campaigning in Florida. Uh, but then in exchange for that, you're going to have lifelong employment, and so that was going to be guaranteed, and so that was something that they, they really valued. And also there was going to be a lot of autonomy. And the, the military was just going to leave a lot of things up to group norms. And so it wasn't like every individual was allowed to do whatever they wanted to. Uh, there was a great deal of cohesion and uniformity, not so much as we have today, but, but still there was. But that was the collective officer corps and regiments uh, really kind of shaped these, uh, these, these informal norms through long-term socialization, and people would spend years, decades within the same regiment. So you 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 were really raised in the way that this is the way the group does things, and uh, a lot of the uh, the norms were carried out in a fairly informal way. Uh, but even when they were, um, you know, somebody had transgressed what was you know thought right, and a lot of times it went to a court martial, which even that, even though it was it was formal and was governed by regulations. Still, it was a board of, you know, brother officers, as they would have said, who were passing judgment. So even then, it, it's a, it's a very, it, it's the formal expression uh, still of, of the collective group uh, policing itself and setting what was right, what was wrong, what was allowed, what was not allowed. So that was a, is a very different uh, sort of, uh, of environment than what we have today, where where the institution uh, is is far more active in, in shaping. Uh, the officer corps and what it does and how it thinks. Discuss the four generations of distinct methods for preparing for war that the Army employed over the 19th century. Okay, yeah. So uh, in the book, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, I go from 1815 all the way up to 1917. Uh, and so within that time, I identify four different professional generations, which were shaped by a combination of the formal institutions, and so things like West Point and and the methods of training, uh, the experiences, uh, you know, what was you know daily life like, and what were the wars they fought in, how did they, how were they shaped, and then also the background of you know changes in American society and uh, how was as we go from the antebellum up to the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, how did the ideas coming from society shape the officer corps? Uh, and I identify four different distinct groups. Uh, the the first one, the foundational generation, is is our focus today because uh, the the Seminole Wars fall entirely within that category. And so the the demographics of that is it's a mixture primarily of the old War of 1812 veterans uh, as well as uh, West Pointers, which West Point is, its first graduates were coming out in 1802, but really started picking up more in its output after the War of, of 1812. And so you kind of have, you know, the, the older strata is, uh, is the veterans of the War of 1812, and then the younger group is, is the West Pointers. Uh, but there's a, a great deal of uh, stability uh, in contrast to what you had uh, before when there was a lot of turnover within the officer corps. And so finally, after the War of 1812, you start seeing groups spend, you know, enough time that they can start developing these informal norms like I had referenced. And also there was a greater degree of standardization and um, proficiency uh, because of that stability and as well as political accountability. 
Um, then real briefly, the other three generations are the Civil War generation. And so that group was basically raised, you know, the same sort of structures as the foundational generation. But uh, the experience of the Civil War, uh, as you can imagine, you know, four years of, of the most, you know, a transformative event for all of America uh, was was also transformative for the individuals who fought through it in the officer corps. And so they had a distinctly different idea than the foundational generation about what war was like coming out of that. Uh, the third generation is the composite generation. Uh, and I called it that because actually these are people who were commissioned after the Civil War and up, up until about 1890. And really, for them, the daily life was was very similar to that of the foundational generation, a small army campaigns that, that uh, were often frustrating. Uh, you know, the, the Apache wars in the Southwest uh, have some some parallels to the Seminole Wars and being long drawn out campaigns with, with pretty extreme environments, obviously very different from the Everglades to, to the Arizona desert. But uh, their the difference was that their expectations were shaped by the Civil War. And so, be, you know, it, it was interesting that there was a, a, a dissonance because the Civil War was was very different than everything that came from before and behind, but they had kind of come to believe that that was normal and not these these frontier campaigns, and so there was a, a bit of dissonance within them. And then finally, uh, the fourth generation, progressive generation, and so this is the generation of guys like George C. Marshall, and so this gets into the 20th century. You know, they were the first of the of uh, the generations that had ideas about institutions, and so to break from that guilt-like professionalism that we'd referenced earlier. Uh, they were the first ones who had kind of what we would, would think of today, that they placed in, uh, a lot of emphasis on institutions and standardizing things in a way that uh, you didn't see in the 19th century. How prepared was the Army for the Second Seminole War when it began? Well, uh, that in some ways, uh, they they were, were, were prepared in that you had, uh, after the, the War of 1812, there had been a lot of standardization in terms of of creating fairly adept small units. And so you had uh, some of the basic soldier skills and the ability to to maintain cohesion under difficult situations, you know, had, had been developed. Uh, you also had a lot of improvements, and this is one of the differences between the First Seminole War and then the Second and Third, was uh, in the early 1820s, uh, John C. Calhoun, as Secretary of War, had built up uh, the the uh, staff organizations, which included the quartermaster, subsistence, and so the the army's ability to to maintain supplies had had uh, even in, across some pretty great distances and, and in difficult you know environments uh, like uh, you know the southeast, they had improved there, and there was even some local knowledge in the sense of you know so Colonel Duncan Clinch, who had been kind of the, the senior commander in in the area before the Dade massacre, you know he had. Um, he had been you know, warning that uh, you know things were, were seemed to be picking up a little bit, uh, and and he understood something of the environment and something of the Seminoles. For the most part, you know the army uh, was also focused on two missions: one, defense of the coast versus you know really kind of the Royal Navy, but also you know the French Navy was was something, and so that clearly had had no relevance whatsoever uh, to the Seminole War. Uh, but even in terms of what they imagined as, you know, the field craft that they wanted to do and the types of campaigns they wanted to fight, uh, the focus was much more on uh, against a, a similar European-styled military. And so while there was knowledge about frontier fighting and about you know, what 
kind of fell under the term of the light infantry tactics, and so skirmishers and, and not in, in the you know, long lines and, and, and volleys that we, we think of in terms of you know, Napoleonic or War of 1812, or even, you know, the Mexican-American War. There was some of that knowledge. It just wasn't emphasized as uh, as much. And whatever knowledge, I think it was the 4th Infantry, whatever whatever the local regiment was, the rest of the Army didn't really have much of a sense for, for, for how to fight uh, in the specific uh, locale that they, that they would all come to know pretty quickly as, as so many people rotated through Florida. And so there was a lot of the very specific knowledge that they that they were lacking, and also they just had a mindset that was geared towards a different fight. Not that they didn't have any of the knowledge, um, but it wasn't emphasized as, as much. How much of this can we apply or attribute to the constraints that the U.S. Congress placed on the Army's preparation for war? And what were some of those constraints? Certainly, some of the problems later on uh, were were due to uh, political constraints, and so I think that probably the the biggest one was just terms in, of resources. Congress did not want to fund a, a really large army, and so the, the two ways that this was seen was that there was a decided lack of mounted troops, and so either dragoons or then later on, you know, cavalry regiments. For a while, the U.S. Army had none, uh, just because they're more expensive to maintain than, than infantry. So that was one aspect of it. Uh, there were a few, I think there was at the beginning of the, uh, the, the, of the Second Seminole War, I think you had two regiments at that point. Later on, there's going to become a third. Um, but, uh, you know, those are very useful uh, on the frontier. Not quite as much uh, within uh, Florida, depending upon the, the exact place that you're, you're going. But still, that was, a, you know, the mobility of mounted troops, um, even in difficult terrain, uh, is, is a huge, uh, huge importance and lacking those because Congress was just kind of cheap was a problem. Uh, the other aspect was just the size of the overall force. So through most of the period of the Second Seminole War, you're talking about 6,000 or so, uh, soldiers in the U.S. Army, if I, if I remember my, my term, or my figures right. You know, some of the, the early estimates in, you know, 1836, 1837 was, you know, we needed four or 5,000 soldiers in order uh, to, to fight this campaign. So you're essentially talking about the entire United States Army would have to be devoted to the task when there was other things that it had to do. You know, it had to, to guard the, the northern frontier and, uh, or the northern border and the western frontier, had to guard the coast. Uh, and uh, the strain that the the, the campaigning in, in Florida put on the army, you really couldn't maintain that uh, by having everybody down there. You needed to be able to rotate people through for you know health and morale reasons, if nothing else. So that was the, the single biggest constraint. Um, there was also uh, some constraints in, in how they were fought, uh, and this I think is much more in, in the second and third wars. Uh, just because then in, in the first, you know, Jackson wasn't under a whole lot of, uh, of constraints from his political masters, whether it was the Secretary of War, the President, much less Congress. And so they, they just didn't figure as, as much into it. But uh, to the, the extent that the, the Seminole Wars were driven by domestic politics, and so the, the desire for more land, the desire of southern slaveholders to, to reduce the magnet 
of these Afro-Indian or Maroon colonies that, you know, the slaves could, you know, could run off to to try to gain their freedom. The politics that were driving the fight also limited some of what commanders were able to do. You know, one of the most contentious elements throughout this whole thing was if you capture one of the Afro-Indians or Maroon, can they be deported off to the West or should they be sold uh, back to you know, slaveholders who, who claimed that they were their property uh, or simply just wanted the, the, the military to run a market and prisoners of war um, uh, for those who were, you know, were African American or for slaves. Uh, and then also the Creeks, uh, our allies also wanted uh, to recapture uh, what they claimed was some of their property, the slaves. In some cases, uh, that had been the case more often, it seems. My understanding is that they actually weren't, they were just trying to profiteer off of this. And so those those local politics uh, played out both uh, in terms of uh, interactions locally between commanders and you know the the territorial government and settlers, as well as playing out in uh, through the Secretary of War and through the administrations trying to get uh, commanders to, to fight a certain way or not. And one of the things that uh, you know. I, I think probably the foremost historian of the time, uh, Samuel Watson, has pointed out is that a lot of people have probably taken too much of the congressional rhetoric in terms of you know looking at the Jacksonian democracy and, and being you know really attacking the officer corps as being a feats and dandies. And so the people have looked at you know these these scathing rhetorical attacks that were in Congress on the army, but in fact, uh, you know his argument is that very little was actually done to follow through on those. And so basically. It was good politics to complain about the army, uh, but neither, uh, you know, the Jefferson or the Jackson or Van Buren administrations or Congress actually followed through on a lot of their threats to do things like shut West Point down and, and others, because they were kind of happy to let the army go out and, and fight this campaign, and they didn't pursue alternatives like raising a large force of volunteers in order to prosecute the war and, and take it out of the army's hands. Um, because the Army was a pretty reliable instrument during this time. That's a nice segue to our question about the role and organization of what we today call citizen soldiers, then called militia or volunteers during this period. What type of constraints were put on them, and what was their role, and how did Congress see their role? So this uh, is is a fascinating period of, of transition uh, from the first through the third Seminole Wars, in that, you know, a lot of times people will use militia or volunteers as, you know, as kind of synonyms because, as you said, you know, today we, we, we think of the, the, the citizen soldier and it's, it's all kind of lumped in together. But there are actually some, some important distinctions that were drawn, particularly at the beginning. And so militia, you know, hails back to that, that classic idea coming out of the, you know, the, the English heritage of, you know, the citizenry being armed and universal militia, uh, as it was called, was the the obligation of every citizen uh, in order to take up arms uh, in, you know, in defense of, of the country. And uh, this tradition was still alive, even though, even during the colonial period, for the most part, we'd use volunteers, and I'll talk about those in a second. But, you know, it, it's, and actually with the, you know, the pandemic, we can see you know, you can't take everybody out and society will keep on going. You know, there have always been essential workers. And so you need people to bring in the uh, the, the crops. And so agricultural workers are very important. 
uh, to a certain extent. Obviously, you have you know different sorts of industries that you need to go. So you, you can't really take everybody and put them into the army. The only places that we really see this is in, in American history or in the very early days of either Virginia or New England, when you had such small settlements that you actually could everybody could you know fight the war because it was it was possible that the, the whole settlement was going to be wiped out in, in some of the early you know early 17th century uh, you know Indian wars they, they all could have been been uh, destroyed and so everybody would for very short periods of time go off to fight but for the most part you know even by the, the late 17th century so the late 1600s the, the colonies were were, were were large enough that you were, you didn't need everybody you didn't want everybody to go because the economy would have stopped and so there became a issue of who should go off and fight and the they could compel people to do that through the militia clause uh, or actually, I would say militia clause. You know, that's the, within the constitution, so this comes a little bit later on. But through the idea of the militia, you know, you could say, hey, we're going to draw lots, and whoever gets it is going to go. But for the most part, the preference, because it's very unpopular for politicians to tell people that they have to fight, the preference was for volunteers. And so that is uh, often distinct in that these would be raised for short periods of time. And so a colonial legislature or once we become the United States, you know, the Congress would authorize, you know, raising some uh, regiments or, or other, you know, sorts of military organizations for a specific period of time. And in that authorizing legislation, they would, you know, say this is how much they be paid and this is how long they're going to have to fight for if they enlist. Um, you know, it could be one year, it could be for the duration. And uh, that tended to be the way that uh, they would, would do it. And so militia, there's a certain aspect of, of compelling people to go uh, versus volunteers, which is usually like, hey, if, if we just rely on market forces, there's probably some, you know, young men who don't have jobs or want some adventure. Uh, and there's probably some some fairly respectable people out there who you know would like to have the you know the title of colonel, and so we can we can get them to uh, to, to to lead this this organization, and that tended to be the majority of what you would see was was volunteers would be raised, and this is within the Second Seminole War, you know when you have you know folks from Missouri and Tennessee, those were raised as volunteers rather than necessarily the classic militia, which is more of a home guard sort of thing. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some Florida militia are going to fight in, in, in these wars. But the idea of the militia, even though it was very rarely used, it was still, you know, you would see a monthly muster of all the citizens of a town throughout most of the, the early states up and through the 1820s. By about in the 1830s, that stops you know, they stop even, you know, uh, the, the, you know, doing the charade and they're just like, no, we're not going to have everybody come out on, you know, the first, you know, Sunday of the, of the month. And then you see a rise of peacetime volunteer units uh, where people, basically it's kind of like a military social club. And so they would get the, the very fancy outfits um, and, you know, give themselves, you know, these, these, you know, highfalutin names like, you know, the Tompkins, Waves, you know, patterned off of these exotic French military organizations. And that was a craze that was kind of in the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, and some of those are going to go into both the, the Mexican-American War and the Civil War. And so that's that's a trend that's beginning towards the end of this, uh, end of the, the Seminole War period. And then the militia basically is defunct 
uh, for the most part by certainly by the 1850s. One thing with the problem with citizen soldiers, and this is why the army was even though you know politicians might attack it, typically volunteers were more expensive. Um, because in order to get these non-soldiers to stay in the fields for long periods of time under arduous circumstances, like certainly we saw uh, in the uh, the Seminole Wars, uh, you, you actually had to pay them more. And so that was why uh, a lot of the burden fell on onto the regulars was because they were they were folks that you could tell, hey, go down to Florida and and stay till it's done, and they would go ahead and they would do that. One of the problems the country experienced with militia in the War of 1812 was governors of New York, and I think it was Vermont, that said, we have our militia here, but they're not going to cross into a foreign territory to do a battle. We'll just be the home guard and fight here on the border with New York. That creates a problem if you're trying to wage a campaign and you're counting on these forces to be accompanying a regular army. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, that was another one of the prods to go towards uh, the volunteers was because there's two different elements in uh, the Constitution that you can you can go ahead and you can start um, you know building armies. Uh, one is uh, simply to, to raise uh, and maintain the armies, and so that's where the volunteers would come from. The militia clause, all the way up and through actually 1912, this was still a question that was being you know bandied about. But, you know, can you compel uh, people who are supposed to be repelling invasions? Can you then go invade as part of repelling invasion? And that was kind of the um, the, the element that was was lost. But um, by having enlisted volunteers, then whatever the law that Congress passed for that war or that emergency uh, allowed them to do that. And um, as we started transitioning from the militia to the National Guard, and this is one of the things I, I talk about in the book in the later uh, you know uh, chapters in the early 20th century. We actually, to get around that that prohibition, because clearly the National Guard had that state militia, um, you know, foundation, but we needed them to be reliable and, and do things like go off to Cuba with you know, the Spanish-American War. So they had to do a, a double oath, one as a militiaman and then one as a volunteer in federal service in order to get around that that, uh, that constitutional prohibition, as a lot of people read it. Why do you say that America's defense needs were never adequately represented by the either-or dichotomy of a standing army versus a militia? So the specific passage there uh, was, was referring to the discussions in the 1780s around the times of the Articles of Confederation and, and, and the Constitution. But really, the, the, the thought kind of kept on trailing on into the, the period that we're talking about, so it's very much appropriate. But when you look at the way that the founders were originally arguing, it was this huge dichotomy between either we need a central government and a central military that's going to defend us, or we have to give it up to the citizen soldiers and the states, and we're going to trust entirely within the militia. And really, that was more of a political question reflecting the you know the great dialogue and debate we were having throughout the early republic of what's the role of the federal government versus what is the role of the state governments. Uh, but in terms of actually building uh, a military, you know the you know the United States uh, for so long. Uh, Certainly in the 1780s, but you can make this argument all the way up, you know, for well into the, uh, the 1800s. It, it just wasn't strong enough that it could say we need either one or the other. Uh, the federal government was necessary in order to be able to support a, you know, an officer corps with thing with, you know, expertise in things like logistics and engineering and artillery. 
and all of these other sorts of, of elements that you know, no state was going to be able to really support just because of, of the scale of the problem. Maintaining you know large amounts of fortifications along the coast, very uh, you know expensive proposition that states were just not going to be able to handle on their own, and also to uh, support units that were more expensive. And so this is when we talk about artillery and uh, you know and also mounted regiments, the dragoons and cavalry. That was just too much for a state militia uh, to be able to afford. But at the same time. You know, we're, we're so used to the federal government and you know, being very visible in our lives. But in the antebellum period, there wasn't a whole lot. You know, basically the, the local uh, postmaster was, was basically you know, the only, you know, federal employee that most people were going to see. And so you needed, you know, local governments, local politicians in order to mobilize the population. And also when we're talking about campaigns that are fought uh, on our own territory, you needed things like the territorial government of Florida to be able to support your campaign uh, for the logistics and, and for a lot of other sorts of things. And so uh, any successful military endeavor for the United States in the early 19th century was going to require both uh, the federal and the state government doing its share. But because the debate was framed in largely political terms, people tended to say, well, it's one or the other. And that just, just wasn't the case, uh, not, not in the way that we needed it to be. How widespread did General Scott's book on infantry and infantry tactics work its way into how the Army and the soldiers employed it? Yeah, so Scott uh, and his, uh, his tactics, we have to do uh, a little bit of, of background on him. So Winfield Scott entered the, the Army in, in 1807. There was uh, a brief period of war scare with the uh, uh, British, and then uh, really, you know, came to the fore as one of the top commanders in the war of 1812. Uh, but one of the problems that they had there was there was multiple different uh, what they would call tactic or infantry regulations, and so these were the commands and these were the formations that you know I, I kind of referenced earlier on that allowed a, a commander to control their unit. And there's a lot of confusion as you would have units, you know, where one was using one set of commands and another unit was using another set of commands, uh, and so they weren't able to be integrated uh, very easily. Based off of that experience, one of the very first things that the Army did after the War of 1812 was convene a board of officers uh, that was led by Scott, and they were going to come up with a standard infantry set of, of regulations and, and tactics. And so that 1815 war, he was kind of the, the driving spirit, and he opted to have a more elaborate form of tactic that was uh, certainly much more fit for professionals and, and long-serving uh, enlisted soldiers because these were very intricate, three-ranked tactics uh, that uh, were, were not very well fit for um, either a regular battlefield or for uh, citizen soldiers. And, uh, and I believe that that was, that was a deliberate choice because he wanted to kind of draw the, a hard distinction between professionals and um, citizen soldiers. And he also wanted to be much more European-like and, and reflect the, uh, the French influence. Uh, in 1825, there was another visit. Uh, Scott, once again, was, was kind of the, the driving factor. But an interesting aspect, uh, particularly as it comes into the Second Summer Wars, it wasn't all just, you know, European-style long lines of infantry. There were inf uh, what they called light infantry tactics. Uh, Scott did not write those in the 1825. William Worth, who's going to become one of the more successful commanders in the Second Federal War, time was the commandant at uh, West Point. And so he wrote the sections on light infantry, which is the skirmishing and something that we actually would, you know, where it was of use within most of the North American campaigns. 
and then, as you said, Scott uh, had the 1835, but those, he got rid of worse like entry tactics, and he adopted a, 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 a new, uh, I think it was 1833 French regulation that was, it was, it was, it was a significant departure, and so anytime you have, you know, something that's quite a bit of change you know there's, there's a lot of you know opinions about whether it's better or for worse and there were a lot of people who still thought that that worse slide entry tactics from the 1825 manual were better and i i don't have enough information to say for certain which commanders fell on onto what um you know side certainly everybody in the army during the second Seminole war understood scott's tactics of 1835 because they were the official tactics for the, uh, the the army um but uh i think it's you know completely plausible that some of them might still have kind of persisted in using some of those that were, were put forward by william worth and those were viewed as being a more more you know truly american influence even though he also took a lot from the european ideas but it was viewed as 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 more of an american idea because there's more of him in it as opposed to some of scott's which was actually really just a translation of the french in some cases, you know, the tactics they even used, you know, the, the American regulations had pictures of French, you know, soldiers. Because we just took the, the illustrations from the, the French manuals and, and, and pasted them into our, our own tactics. One is tempted to look at how the Army performed and say, well, we had a laboratory. Scott employed his way. Worth later employed his way. Clearly, Worth's way was the better way. But that would be a superficial way of looking at it, would it not? You know, this is a, a an interesting uh, question of what was most important in bringing these wars to a conclusion. Uh, was it the tactics, uh, or you know, what is the role of you know the politics that are surrounding it, and also the, the effect uh, over time? Uh, I think that probably a lot of folks would say that it wasn't even necessarily the, the tactics of, of either that was so successful, but once you started getting into the attacking of the the sub- sub- subsistence. Uh, and going after, you know, the, the cattle and the fields and the villages and everything else like that. And so in some ways you could say the tactics were kind of irrelevant. And certainly to the extent that some of the units adopted seminal, uh, you know, tactics, dress, all those other sorts of things, you know, that was neither within uh, Scott or Worth. And so you could say that there actually was a third, you know, option that was more, hey, what just what works on the ground within this specific, uh, you know, tactical context, um, and and there was certainly some of that, you know, some of the you know the joint patrols and 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 just like the the small unit actions that was 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 very particular and and I don't think was necessarily reflected in, in either of those sets of, of of official tactics. Why do you say the currency of frontier fighting, which is what the fighting was for the most part in the Second Seminole War? That that currency was not military brilliance, but rather military resolve. And this is, I think, is me arguing to a certain extent with historians, because uh, you know, as historians, obviously, you know, we're, we're, we deal with written sources and we deal with ideas, and so we place a great deal of emphasis on it. And so sometimes that will lead to an analysis that if there was frustration, and certainly there was a great deal of of you know disappointment and frustration in you know the the, the beginning of the campaign 1835 36 37 that oh it must have been because they didn't have the right idea um, and so you know we we understate 
as a historical field the importance of execution. Uh, and particularly the one that I'm really kind of thinking of is, is Robert Utley, who's, who's a fantastic historian, one of the, the foremost historians of the uh, frontier. And so certainly not um, disparaging his work as, as a whole, but I do take exception to, to one small element of his work, which he said that he's, he's critical of the army that it didn't really develop a, a doctrine for, uh, you know, for Indian fighting and didn't adapt its organizations as much as he thinks it should have. I think that this is, uh, is that that particular analysis, um, once again, you know, overstates the, the importance of, of I, written ideas particularly. Um, because you can then ask, well, do the Seminoles have doctrine? Uh, they seem to be have done pretty well without it. So, so there's a certain amount of, um, you know, just fieldcraft and, and learning. And I think we certainly see, you know, continuous adaptation uh, on the, the side of the U.S. Army as they develop, you know, just the, the, the knowledge of how to, you know, keep themselves, you know, hopefully, you know, healthy and, and, and moving about uh, in a very difficult, you know, environment. Uh, but then really what it came down to, and I think that the, for the Seminole War, you have a, a great example in the first, which was fought by, you know, Andrew Jackson in a very ruthless fashion. A very important work within American military history is uh, John Grenier, the, the first way of war. And he's, he argues that actually, you know, the most distinctive form of American warfare, and the very first one we had, and this goes back into you know, the early 1600s, was what they called the feed fight. And that is exactly what was what you know, Jackson did in uh, the First Seminole War, and what uh, the territorial governor, Governor Eaton, told Winfield Scott to do as he kind of came through after the Dade Massacre. Keep pressure on them, go after their farms, put pressure on their families, keep them moving. So there was, there was definitely, there was a good formula that everybody understood in order to drive these wars to conclusion. But what it required was an extremely ruthless commander. You know, Andrew Jackson was certainly that, and we would see that later on in some of the other, you know, frontier campaigns when you have a guy like Phil Sheridan who was ready to drive his, his own soldiers very hard, uh, to accept, um, you know, uh, casualties in the winter campaigns on the on the plains is kind of you know the the, the, the same sort of thing as, as as campaigning throughout the summer in the Everglades. You're, you're going to take casualties on, on your your soldiers from the environment, uh, and also they're certainly not going to be very happy with you. But giving no respite to the enemy and going after their means of staying alive, you know their 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 families and their their farms. That ruthlessness is actually you know to to execute that formula was what it was required in order to do Indian fighting and not some sort of doctrine. You, you didn't need that in order to, 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 to do these. You just needed uh, the right sorts of leaders who, who were willing to resort to these measures, which, hope, which I think, fortunately, today, uh, I don't think we would do because um, there's some, some, some real ethical and moral concerns about you know, doing those. But in terms of just pure military effectiveness, it was pretty clear that that was the, uh, the, the formula to follow. And no silver bullet, just dogged determination. Yeah, and, and the, the, you know, just in pure misery, you know, with, to a certain extent, you have to do that as the commander, but also inflicting it upon your soldiers. Although it does take a, a, a toll, both in terms of health, and so we saw this when, you know, they start shifting to the year-round uh, and the summer campaigning. Uh, but also, you know, there's a certain degree of, you know, morale 
where the officers in, in Florida didn't have their families with them. And so going out and risking disease and, I mean, the sick lists are just amazing. I think it's typically around one in five um, and then, you know, spiked up at, at points to, you know, half of the armies on the sick list. It wasn't just sheer laziness why they didn't want to campaign in the summer. There were some pretty good reasons not to do it. And, and, and being willing to, to drive your army to that point, you know, not, not every commander is willing to do it. Today, we have many venues, including the Center for Army Lessons Learned, to capture best practices. What venues did officers of the time have to share their best practices so that the next round of officers or units that came down didn't repeat the same mistakes? And this is one of the, uh, the, the chief weaknesses of that guild-like professionalism that we discussed earlier, because there actually is not a formal mechanism to make sure that you do that. They did have uh, the Army and Navy Chronicle. Officers would write in, typically actually under, under you know, an anonymous, under pseudonym, they would, you know, share their thoughts. Uh, although a lot of times also there was debates about, you know, should we give this up? Um, should we adopt some sort of policy, you know, or a tactic like, you know, should we have bloodhounds in order to, you know, help us, you know, find the, the Seminoles to, uh, should we just allow them to be deported and, and not have these, uh, you know, the slave auctions or, you know, the, the captured Afro-Indian? All of these sorts of things were, were debated, but there, were, there was some sharing of, of ideas. I think that a lot of it also happened, unfortunately for historians, uh, by word of mouth. And so within a regiment that happened to be there for, for a long period, uh, as you would get new soldiers, uh, new officers coming in, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of interchange amongst regiments. There was some that, you know, those very informal networks would, would pass on the field craft. But they didn't really have a standing body that would allow them in order to inculcate these lessons learned uh, for others who are coming through. And you know, we spoke a little bit before about, you know, the, the tactics. Whenever you'd have uh, a new set of tactics, and so the things of doctrine, they would bring together a board of officers, and so four or five people who were on temporary duty to uh, put down what they thought was the best way to fight. And then they would go back out to their units. And so there was no body that was continually bringing in these lessons and making sure that they were, were uh, you know, put out in, in a codified, in consistent fashion. And that was a weakness. Uh, I would love to know how much carryover there was in some of the knowledge um, based off of veterans between, say, the Second and Third Seminole Wars. You know, how much did they have to start from scratch? But unfortunately, that bought, a lot of that knowledge was just, you know, kept in the minds of, of the folks who were executing it. So we're not quite sure, you know, how that may have happened. The Second Seminole War is a neglected topic in military school and often a forgotten conflict in U.S. history. What do war college students lose if they're not studying at least some aspects of the Second Seminole War and how it was waged? From the antebellum period, uh, it has no real signature event or, or name attached to it. Probably the most famous person would be um, you know, Winfield Scott. Uh, and then also it, it's hard to understand and follow because there, it wasn't a campaign of, of easy, uh, easily defined and understood events. You know, that there was a, a battle on this given day at this point. And um, so it's just, it's kind of hard to get your mind wrapped around. I would say that that is certainly probably, you know, the majority of, you know, military experience is not reflected in a single decisive battle that changes everything on, 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 a, on a given day that we can, you know, point to the spot on the ground that, you know, something momentous has occurred and, and, and history kind of bent its course. But understanding how policies uh, change over time, uh, you know, the Second Seminole War is 
great example of policy and politics and strategy interacting of, you know, military commanders saying, hey, you know, we should we should give in a little bit. You know, the, the maximalist demands of some of the Florida settlers are, are keeping us here where the Seminoles just really want to be left alone. And as long as we, you know, you know, figure out some sort of accommodation in terms of, you know, the Afro-Indians and the Maroons, you know, this, this couldn't be solved. And that dialogue between military commanders and uh, you know, domestic constituencies, you know, so politics and policy kind of intertwined there, is a great lesson for strategists. Uh, and, and military professionals. Uh, and then also just the way that campaigns kind of change over time. Um, you know, Carl von Clausewitz, great theorist, you know, talks a lot about uh, the, the role of, of emotion within warfare. And so the way that the Second Seminole War starts off with, you know, the, the Dade Massacre and there's this, this pitch of, of public outcry really kind of constrains what commanders can and can't do. Where later on, as the public kind of stops paying attention and we start getting into this period of, of you know, economic depression that's going to come later on in the late 1830s, uh, the mood really changes and that is going to affect the way that, you know, what commanders can do and can't. J.P. Clark, we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us on the Seminole Wars. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.